0: It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehuda Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites, and in part two of our Washington Heights uh, Great American Jewish uh, C- Cities episode is also has been generously sponsored in memory of Chaim ben David v'reyasoi, Meisha Mordechai ben Svi v'reyasoi. And um, continuing to say a little more of the stories that I um, heard also from Rabbi and Rebison Shachter that I mentioned in part one, um, a few more of their stories and a few other stuff that I... Uh, Found also um, interesting to share. We were left off in part one about about the rebbei Reb- Reb yeshiva, the Re- yeshiva of Rabbi Shav Shmuel Shav Hirsch. and uh, Rabbi Shechter um, recounted some memories he had of the original reish yeshiva there, Rabbi Naftali Friedler. Said it was a very lovable individual. Um, the people were captivated, they loved him, very influential. Uh, the Balabatim loved him. Very interesting uh, custom that Rabbi Naftali Friedler did was that he gave a shear on Shabbos afternoon to the parents of the student body. And uh, he would give a shear on whatever the yeshiva was learning. He would give a shear on the material that the yeshiva students had studied during that week, he would give to the parents on Shabbos afternoon. And the reason he did so was to be able to teach the parents, the yeshiva shatayra, that the kids are learning. In this way, the parents would be able to relate to the kids. The parents would be able to study with the kids. And um, a very innovative idea, uh, educational idea. Now, he was so beloved by the community that he was next in line. He was going to be the one to take over a Breuer. There seemed to be no question about it. An interesting turn of events took place is that he received an offer from Gateshead to come to the yeshiva in England. And he understood the offer as to be that he would sit and learn and maybe teach, but be completely devoted to his studies and it would enable him to grow as a Talmud Chacham. And uh, he decided that sounds like a great prospect to be able to be completely immersed in Torah study. And Rev. Breuer said, if you go you won't be able to come back. We're not holding your position here. So I say, don't go. So Matali Frida decided to ask Hermesha Feinstein. <clears throat> and Rav told me this, Ma'isa. And um, <clears throat> excuse me. And Hermesha said to him, um, well, your own growth as a Talmud Chachim comes first. If you understand that the offer from Gateset is for you to be able to sit and learn in peace and you'll grow, so then, therefore, you should definitely take the offer under that those conditions. So he he left uh, Washington Heights. He went to Gateshead. He lost his position in Breuer's, and when he arrived in Gateshead, it turned out that the whole thing was a mekachtos. It was a mistake, a misunderstanding, and he was his position there was going to be involved in fundraising in an administrative sense, and uh, definitely not something he anticipated or was interested in altogether. So after a month or two, he came right back to America, and, 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 uh, and the yeshiva didn't hold his position, like her Breuer said, and they had given it already to the next Rosh Yeshiva, who turned out to be the Novominsk Rebbe. So instead of Naftali Friedler, became a yeshiva in Neri in Toronto. Um, later on, he actually was in Muncie. He uh, ironically became the Rav of the KJ community, the branch of KJ that was opened there in Muncie, which also didn't work out. He left that position. And, um, and uh, they, went, they went through, they, they, they hired someone else. And in fact, when I grew up in Muncie, I remember Reb Friedler, a very distinguished individual. And since he happens to be buried right near Bel Yashiv on Haram Anuchas in Yerushalayim, so I sometimes bring groups there when we tour Haram Anuchas, I bring them to Reb Friedler, this amazing individual's uh, cover. So, like I said, that Novominska Rebbe, the future. Then he wasn't the Novominska Rebbe. He takes over as the Rosh Hashiva in Broyer's, and um, and uh, in fact, in honor of the recent 40th yard site of Rav Breuer, So they interviewed really shortly, days or maybe weeks before his passing, unfortunate passing. They interviewed Novominska Rebbe in honor of Rav Breuer's 40th yard site. A beautiful. Uh, video uh, interview where he says uh, his stories about Rav Breuer and also his relationship with him and amazing that someone who grew up as a uh, Kotzker He said that he took to Rav Breuer as a wise person and took to the community the Yeki community and actually would come to ask Advice and his aides by Rev Breuer. That was the what the government says. So he was the reshiva there for a bunch of years and he takes over of course the Shabbos afternoon shear to the parents. You know, during his tenure there, the Nobaminsky Rebbe um, was, uh, was ill, he was sick for something, and the doctor said that he was something in his throat and some sort of medical condition. And this story also, Rabbi Shechter told me, and, he, and he, the Nobaminsky Rebbe wasn't able to talk for an entire year. So he's a Rosh Hashiva, how could he not talk? So during the week, he distributed uh, worksheets with questions, he wrote on the chalkboard, uh, what about the Shabbos shear? What's he going to do Shabbos afternoon? He can't exactly distribute worksheets to the parents, and he definitely can't write on the chalkboard. So he asked Rabbi Herschel Shechter to substitute for him, um, for to give the Shabbos afternoon shear. So whatever the Broyer's yeshiva was learning, so Rabbi would give the shear um, um, to the to the uh, to the uh, the lay community, parents, parents of the student body of the yeshiva, and he and he and he kept it kept it going. Even after the Nivmenskareba got better, he asked uh, Rabbi Shechter to continue, and he actually gave that shia for ten years. Um, when the Nivmenskareba was the Rosh yeshiva there, he lived in Washington Heights, and her Breier told him, "You're not allowed to wear a strimal in Washington Heights." in public. This is a yucky community, minig Frankfurt. and Frankfurt, we didn't wear shtrayimals. So, he, the Nebuchadnezzar only wore it at home, so you shouldn't forget what a spadik looks like, and he didn't walk around the streets. I remember hearing from an elderly Hasidic Jew that when he was a Talmud of Lakewood in the nineteen, I think, sixties or 70s, um, Sir Reb Schneer Cutler did not encourage uh, wearing a strimal. He was one of the only Hasidisha uh, married couples in Lakewood at the time. It's, it's not another, another fellow. And he wasn't allowed to wear a strimal in the streets of Lakewood either. And I don't know if strimals have made it to Washington Heights yet, but I think they've made it to Lakewood at this point. Um, so, so the, the wor- arrangement with the yeshiva was there was another shul in the neighborhood called the Aguda. Now, I don't know if they were affiliated with Aguri's shul. As it happens, the, the KJ community was very closely affiliated with Agudas Yisro. Of course, it was it was Frankfurt Balobatim, along with Rabbi Shlomo Breuer who founded Agudas Yisro. and the Polish and Litvaks only came along later. Although they might not want to tell you that, and and uh, so they were the founders. Of course, they were very involved in Agudas There There's a Agudas Yisro branch in in the KJ community, and of course, all the rabbis there and the Balobatim were very involved in the Aguda. But there's also a shul in the neighborhood called Aguda. And whoever was the Rosh Yeshiva of the Borei's Yeshiva also had the rabbinate of the Agudah Shul. That was the arrangement. So the Rav Minsky rabbi was the rabbi in the Agudah Shul. Now, Mishachta told me that he davened for a couple of years in the Agudah Shul. He, a couple of years that he did not daven in in, in the Yeshiva, in um, But he davened in the Agudah, which is closer to the side of the neighborhood. And one Shabbos morning they found, which is, happens sometimes, a mistake in the Sefer Torah, so they put it back and they take out a new Sefer Torah. So the the, the Novominsker, the future Novominsker the Rav of the Shul, said the Mishnah Berurah says a Chumrah that you should reread seven Aliyahs again um, from the second Sefer Torah. And they, they went ahead and they read the seven Aliyahs. As it happens, it was Parshas Hazinu, and in Parshas Hazinu, for some reason, again Rabbi Shechter explained to me the halacha and. Sometimes he, during the conversation we had, he digressed into the Lambdas and the Vritair and everything. That's when I lost him. So this was one of those times. Um, and he said, for some reason, by Parsha's Hazinu, you do not redo the seven Ali's because Hazinu is supposed to be read as one unit or whatever it is, because it's Shira, because it's Hazinu. And uh, the Navaminsky Rebbe realized that Shabbos afternoon, that he had made a mistake that they were not supposed to read the seven aliyahs again when they took out the second Sefer Tyre. Now, if he didn't, now Rabbi Shefda says, no one would have noticed. It was regular, simple balabatim in the shul. They trusted him, no one would have noticed. But the Nebominsk Rebbe was very intellectually honest. And you know, you know how many rabbis would have done this. But by Mincha, he gave a bang on the bima. And he said, I want everyone to know that I made a mistake this morning. And even though normally the Brewer has a Chumrah that if you take out a second, say for Tyra, uh, you're supposed to read seven Aliyahs, but not by Parshish hazino And it was a mistake. I shouldn't have done that. That was an incredible uh, greatness of the Navaminsk Rebbe. He was someone who the local community connected very much to. And they used to ask Eitzes, they used to ask for advice and speak to him. Uh, now, Rav Broyer also would give Shiurim to the community. He gave, like I said in part one, he gave in high German. He gave three nights a week, Navi and other topics. And um, uh, Rav Shimon Schwab would give shiur and would give drushes to the community. And Rav Shechter said how Reb Schwab, he loved Rav Schwab's uh, drushes. They were works of art. He said he would read a medrash, he would read a chazal, and then he would translate it into English. But it, he said most people didn't realize that he wasn't translating it. He was interpreting it. He was giving a pirush. He was, he was saying a whole, a whole thing, and it was, it was beautiful the way Rav Shwab would speak and the depth of his speech and the clarity and the, it was, it was really, really something to enjoy and experience. Now, on the other side of the neighborhood, of course, was Yeshiva University, and many of the rabbis in the yeshiva would live local in those days. Uh, one of the prominent rabbis who lived locally was rabdavid Lifshitz and um, who's the Suvalka Rav, and he also came to America on a visa of um, Rav Revel in the beginning of the war. And Rav Lifshitz, um, I remember uh, his daughter, of since Shalamus Kamenetsky, your master's wife, who t- told me about her father and how they escaped, that she was a little girl then, she remembered, and that they came to the heights. And so he lived in the neighborhood. And not only that, but there were a lot of Balabatim who lived on the other side of the neighborhood in those days. Today it's, Today it's, it's, again, a resurgence. There is a, a new growth in the community there. And 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 he had a shul. The had a shul that was independent of the yeshiva. It was local, uh, local uh, lay, laymen, local balabatim, who had a shul. And he was the rav of that shul today. You know, those balabatim eventually moved out of the city. And uh, eventually the neighborhood changed, became more non-Jewish, Dominicans, Puerto Rican. And then the uh, gentrification of the neighborhood uh, in recent years, a lot of young uh, families, y u families, Kayol families, uh, moved in also in the neighborhood. Um, so there's you know, d- a lot of dynamic uh, demographic changes going on in the neighborhood as well. So in any event, the said that when he was in the yeshiva, so he decided that when he's going to be shavuos in the yeshiva, I believe he was still single at the time, and he, and he, the, he ate, decided he's going to eat in the yeshiva, going to be completely in the yeshiva for shavuos, eat there, sleep there, learn there, only only in yeshiva. And the yeshiva served a milchik meal, a dairy meal. So he's a little nervous eating a dairy meal, and shyamtif he's supposed to have fleishiks. So he went to Rabbi David house, right across the street, and he asked him, what should we do? We had only milchiks the yeshiva served. Should we also eat fleishiks? And he said, Rabbi David Lifshitz said, milchiks, you didn't eat a yamtif suda yet. Come inside my house, sit down, I'm gonna serve you flasheks. And he said they came and they had a whole flashek by him. He said another Rebbe who lived across the street from Yeshiva was the mashgiach of, uh, Ben Yusuf Yaakov Chonor. Lessin. Yaakov was a slabotka, tamar of the altar. He said that he didn't really fit into America, you know, at all. He was, he was in the world of slabotka, in the world of lita. But he also had an influence both in the yeshiva and the neighborhood. Everyone had, he commanded a lot of respect. A lot of respect for Rav himself, would have a, a tremendous amount of respect for a lesson, and um, and of course, whenever Rav would fly in from Boston, he would also be in the neighborhood. Not only would he be in the neighborhood, he stayed in the dormitory in the yeshiva on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. It, it, those are the only two days a week he was uh, in his days that he would uh, that he would be in the neighborhood. He gave uh two shiurim during that time one a regular uh um, yeshiva shir for the younger guys the gemara shir and then the other day was was the smihashir in the chulan and um it kept them busy all week they would each shiur was two hours. He in those days the shear was in Yiddish and he said he you know he belted it out, he belted out the Shear like a machine gun and it was very fast, very fast paced, spoke fast and uh, and they covered a lot. They covered a lot of ground, many, many blots. And they, they therefore, they had the whole week to prepare for uh, his shiurim. Another Rebbe who was in the yeshiva at the time, but lived on the Upper West Side, who would come into the yeshiva, was Remendel Zaks. And he was the Baikin, he tested the boys. He was also the substitute. And uh, one morning, a Rebbe would call in sick, he's not well. Remendel Zaks would be called up. On his way to walking into the Shear. He would say, "What? What is this shear? What's this particular shear learning? Which Masechta? Which blood? And they would tell him, and then bam, he would have a shear just like that, and he would uh, be able to say a whole shear. He also tested the boys when they came into the yeshiva. He would test them on things that he knew they wouldn't know, and he said, "I'm doing it to sharpen your minds. I'm doing it to see that if you know how to think out of the box." So old school uh, Litvak. And uh, Rav Shachter said that one of the reasons he wanted to settle in the neighborhood. When he got married, which wasn't that common, as a Kailingaman, part of the yeshiva was to be to be influential, like a lot of his rebbeim were in the uh, in the neighborhood, to be part of the yeshiva in in local, not to come in every day and to just learn there, and to be able to give shiurim there at night, which he had already been doing when he was single, and in fact he said that a funny story when he was in uh, Eretz Yisrael about 20 years ago it was shemitah. So they went down to the to to the Rav Rav Mendelsohn, who was a pioneer. His father really was a pioneer with the Chasenish in uh, in 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 Shemitah observance with farmers in Israel. So he, Rav Shachter was schmoozing with with this Rav Mendelssohn. and he said, "Where are you? you live in Washington Heights? Oh, you are Rebbe in in YU." So Rav Mendelsohn, who you know is a Rav in Kaimemius, and he, you know, his father was close to the Chazanish, comes from really a different world. Said, so, you know, I always heard about YU, and you know, I I heard it wasn't really a yeshiva because you know they have secular studies there. He said, but recently I was in Washington Heights, and I was driving around the neighborhood, and I saw these YU boys, and they were wearing tzitzis, and they were carrying sfarim, and they looked like yeshiva boys. What changed? How did they change? I heard that you know it wasn't like such a you know an impressive place. That's what he asked of Shachter. So Rosh Hashem decided to get him going. So he said, I'll tell you what changed. Zionism. He says, these item: they started going from America to learn in Israel for a year after high school. And the parents were all into it for a year or even more than a year. And when they're a year in Eretz Yisrael, they get much more into learning. They get devoted to learning. They become more from. They come back to YU. They're knocking away and learning. And that's what changed the yeshiva. I don't know how much he appreciated that answer, but that was a a funny exchange. Um one last uh YU story before we get back to the Ekkies. So the um so the, the the um this I heard many years ago from Sheikh Tabi Hazard it over last night again. Uh he said that uh there was a guy who asked a question during Shiratarov Solvaitchik and um and in your day in the day in the Svikha Shir. I know Solvedic didn't like the questions. He said, How do you not know that? Even the wolves here know Yayradeya by now. So the guy says, Back to Sulvejik. He says, The wolves heard it ten times. This is only my first time hearing it. So of course the wolves know it better than me. And the reason I remember the story was because in Shabbos morning, during that Shabbos that I spent at the Shechters, so Friday night we dove in the broyers I mentioned. Shabbos morning we went to the yeshiva. And I said, I want to see the walls that know Yeridea. That's one of the things uh, I wanted to see. Um, so I still don't know Yeridea until today, but at least I saw walls that know Yeridea. You now, um, one place where I remember from my wife's grandparents, um, that they said that the, yakis, the, the uh you know, you can't vacation in Washington Heights uh, during the city, during the summer. It's very hot and very... You know, in general, it's crowded. It's a city. It's, it's it's the edge of Manhattan, but it's still Manhattan. And and they would go, all go up to Tannersville. That was there the Yankees. That's where Broyer himself. And there was really no non-Yankees in those days who went to Tannersville. It was really a very clicky, kind of like what the neighborhood itself was very clicky, very you know protective about who they were. And again, in those days it was a booming neighborhood. It was very strong, very large. Uh, um, the decline happened uh, only much later. And so there weren't really any non-Yakis. At one point, Rabbi Schechter also went up there and they, they went. There was a couple of Talmudim uh, who came up with him and they learned every day on the porch. They learned chulin. They studied together. And the, uh, the Yaki Balabatim enjoyed seeing uh, them learning. And they finished the whole chulin over the two months of the summer. Remember, Shechter and a couple of guys in the Baalat were very excited. They're very impressed. They decided to sponsor a Fleshik Kiddish Shabbos morning, the last Shabbos of the summer, in honor of the Siam of them finishing Chulin. At that point, it was already later on in Rav Breuer's life. He was already blind. And he was amazed that they had finished Chulin in two months. He spoke to them and learning a little bit. And he decided to speak at, uh, at the Siam. And he said, and this is again the world that Rebroyer was, lived till he was 98 years old. He lived through generations and generations. He belonged to another world. That was one of his greatnesses, that he was able to relate to the new world and speak to people of the next generation. But he he said to Shechter, he said, did you hear of this new Sefer that came out, the Meshech Ochma? Now the Meshech Ochma at that point was written by, of course, Rameir Simcha of Dvinsk, was written over 60 years before but to Rav Broyer, who remembered when it came out, it was a new safer. So so he said so said, Yeah, I heard of the safer um, of the of the Meshra'ud Arsameh. So he said he brings there a question that the Chassam Sefer asks about how do we know that Gershon is Gayer Kikatan Shanaila Dami? How do we know that a convert is like a baby child that has just been born and does not have any blood relations to anyone. He's like a new creation, a new child, a new baby. That's what a, a convert to Judaism, that's the halachic status that he has. How do we know that? So the Meshechachma answers is that by Matan Torah, we just had a Shavuos now recently, it says, Shuvu Lochem Lo you can go back to your wives. Now, some of their wives were related to them, you know, because before Matan Torah, they were allowed to marry whoever they wanted. And here the Torah is permitting them to go back to their wives, even though their wives might have been cousins or whatever, any forbidden relations, cry them. And They they, they were not allowed to marry. So so we see from here that Ger, Shenzgayar, all of them had the status of a Ger now. They were just born and they're kikot and shenailah. So they're allowed to marry someone who is, Genetically, they're relative, but halachically is not their relative because they all have the status of Geirim. That's what the Mezheh apparently said. So Rebbe says, I want to tell you something. That it can't be that this, I, I can't believe such a Pshat. You know why? Because how could he say that we lose all our krayvim? That means we lose our status as bnei Avraham Yitzchak V'Yakriv. We're no longer the children of the Avais. And how could we lose that father? And it can't be that this pshat is correct. We can't be a ger shenizgayer because we have to be children of Avraham Yitzhak and Yaakov. That's how, uh, how strongly Rev Breuer felt about that. In fact, there was a Hasidic Rebbe from Romania, Rabbi Israal Stein, who also came up to Tannersville and he had the Hasidic custom of giving his grandchild, great grandchild, an upshirin when he's three years old of cutting his hair. So he went to Rev Breuer, who was the Rav, and he said, "Can you come and snip my hair?" And Breuer didn't know what he was talking about. The Yekkes and the Litvaks and many, most uh, European Jews, besides for Hasidim, don't do upsherin. And uh, you know, and, and and he's here. He's asking Rebbeir to become a barber. But Rebbeir was very gracious, very respectable, very classy. And he's he he said, "This is your custom, so I want to participate." And he went ahead and he snipped this little boy's. Uh, hair um, the um, The Rav Shimon Schwab when he was the Rav in the neighborhood, so the Yeki Frankfurt Minig and I remember when my father-in-law was saying Kaddish for his parents I remember he was very machbed on this uh, custom that you own only one person says Kaddish at once no two people it's a lack of decorum and you can't hear more than one person and that's too wild for the Yachis so only one person says Kaddish. And one. A lot of people need to say Kaddish. Obviously that was the original custom. Saying more than one Kaddish is a fairly new thing and it happened, ironically, because of an epidemic. And most, a lot of people lost relatives. So Rabbi Kiva Eger said that uh, they should have more, more than one person saying Kaddish together. That's a different story. Um, well, maybe we'll talk about how customs developed in another uh, episode. But in any event, so the... Um, the uh, the the so what they did in 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 Breuer's, in the shul, was that they add they found opportunities to add a kaddish to have another kaddish so that more people could say kaddish because since only one person could say it once if a few people had to say kaddish they tried to add on kaddish. So rav Shimon Schwab instituted that he said a halacha shear in the morning of Kitzur Shulchan and after Kitzur someone would say kaddish. Now he was he was Rabbi Shimon Schwab was a real rov. He learned the simple halachas of Kitzur Shulchan and they went through several halachas every day. He explained it to the balabatim, and they finished the entire kitzus shulchan Aruch every single year. Then other abanim, the zoroshektes said, other abanim, they, they you know, kitzus shulchan is, is too too low. It's a, too simple a safer. They do mishneh with bir Halacha, or they go into the paiskim, or Zaman or balyashiv, said rufshim and shwab. He understood that the best and the easiest is to give over the simple halacha to the community members. And that's, that's the most practical. And that's how, um, he led his kehila. Now, one of the, uh, in the, I mentioned that there was tension between the two communities, the Breuer's, the KJ community and the YU community. One of the ways that it expressed itself was about the Eruv. Now, there's no such thing as having a commu- Jewish community somewhere where the Eruv is not an issue. So it's endemic to every community in the world. Either you have an heir or don't have an heir, and for sure to have some sort of dispute um, um, uh, in regards to the heir. So it's not unique to Washington Heights, but uh, but here, um, Rav Breuer was opposed to an heir, and Rav Shimon Schwab was opposed to the heir, and the members of the well, Yid community wanted to make the heir, and eventually they did, and there was always a controversy about it. And eventually, when they were successful in, in building it, so that it ultimately brought young people to the neighborhood. Young people need to have strollers and, and, uh, and, and, you know, it just, it's more attractive to come to the neighborhood. When, when in the early years, when the Yakis were the majority in the neighborhood of the, of the Shemri Shabbos com- community, so they, um, there was no era. Now, um, interesting enough, there was someone, actually, I remember the son from Munsi, where Shechter, remembered the father. Mr. Grunebaum, the baker. He was actually a baker back in Frankfurt. And he said that, uh, he remembered that when Rav Shlomer Breuer became the Rav after Rav Shamschner Fal Hirsch passed away, after his father-in-law, Rabbi Dr. Solomon Breuer, after his father-in-law Rav Shamschner Fall Hirsch passed away. So he came to the community. The other community, the mainstream Orthodox, Orthodox community, the KAJ community, was of course the separatists, the Austrit. They separated, that was Rav Hirsch's uh, position that there's no compromise, there's no recognition of reform or, or any other stream of Judaism, so you can't be in the established community that recognizes the legitimacy of the Reform Temple and the membership of the Reform Jews in the community, and therefore we have to separate and have our own community. That was Auschwitz. That's Hirsch fought for, and that's of course a topic for another time. So, so, of Breuer, or the original of Breuer, Rav Solomon Rav Breuer, he, uh, he, um, he, he, when he came to the community, so the other, the other community, the other Orthodox community in Frankfurt had built an Erev. So R. Schleim Breuer said, the Erev is no good. So he said, why not? So he said, I'll teach you eruvin as soon as I become the rabbi, and I'll explain to you why it's no good. So Mr. Grunabam said that they learned eruvin for three years with the Rav, with R. Schleim Breuer, and he said at the end of three years, he knew eruvin, but he still did not know why the other Erev was Passell was no good. And presumably the reason was because of the fact that the other community in Frankfurt had built it, and perhaps uh, that uh, trickled down into the Washington Heights uh, philosophy also. So, so you know, Rebroyer or Schwab, they were opposed to building an Erev, and uh, and um, and um, and someone came to Schwab and asked him, why not? Why can't we do it? They want to build an Erev. So Schwab said... Ich bin schon aus I'm already not the Rav. He's retiring. Rav Geli is coming. Rav Scharia Geli. And, uh, and, and you could ask him. He said, you should know that when I was a rabbi in Germany, I was a rabbi in a town in Bavaria, which the name escapes me. And, um, and we had an Arab there. He said over there, um, I was responsible for the Arab. I took full responsibility for it. I checked it. And therefore it was possible here I can't take responsibility for it. Why? because I can't take responsibility for the entire Manhattan. And if I have just for Washington Heights, then people will say, oh, they carry in Washington Heights. Rav Shimon Schwab says you can carry Washington Heights. That means he holds of the air in Manhattan, and we can carry anywhere in Manhattan. So he doesn't want to take that type of responsibility. It's all or nothing. Um, and Rav Geli uh, asked Rav Shimon Schwab, what do you mean that ich bin shown ois rauf? You meant that it's my responsibility now, you meant that you're not the rabbi anymore. What do you mean? You're still around. I'm just your assistant. So Schwab, uh, clarified. He said, what I meant to say was as an expression that you'll make an air of here over my dead body. That's, that's basically what I meant in more, uh, straight talk. So this, uh, the air remained a point of contention. And when people would carry their talus in the streets so the members of the Yaki community would, would greet them by saying good yantif, because if it was yantif, then you're allowed to carry your talis. So presumably, if you're carrying your talis on Shabbos, that means that you hold that it's, uh, yantif. So that, uh, I guess that became that the, the, uh, the, another, another, another issue. Um, on the topic of austrit. so, um, so, so Ravi Shechter, uh, was once uh, speaking in Nair Yisrael, and he's, he was schmoozing with Rav Ruderman afterwards. And he said, where do you live? Washington Heights, Rabbi and Yeshiva University. So he said, oh, it's nice to live with the Yakas. The Yakas are very nice people. He said, you know, you have to deal with the fact that they, that the Yekkes believe that the biggest mitzvah of all 613 mitzvahs is ousted. It's, it's sometimes a little rough to deal with, but other than that, it's fine. So that's, uh, that's a strong position that came all the way from Rav Hirsch. And then we come along to, the, the development of the community that, um, you know, the, uh, the community grows and it becomes difficult to live in the city. Um, in the 1980s, ready started in the 70s, in the 1980s, originally the Jews that came over, they lived in small apartments, small families. Sometimes it was multi-generational living in the same apartment. And when affluence grew and there were larger families and people wanted more space, people wanted a backyard for kids, so they wanted to move the community. There was a movement within the Kahila to move the entire Kahila to Orangeburg, New Jersey. Rav Schwab was opposed to it, and that be, became an issue. Rav Schwab has many speeches where he speaks uh, some of them are published, um uh, to try to keep the Kahila together, to, debating whether to move it altogether or to stay or to try to you know stick it out inside Manhattan. Um, many of the young ones eventually decided they're moving to Muncie. Um And I heard from a an older prominent uh, Yaki, or Muncie who was started off in, in the Kehillah in Washington Heights, that Rav Schwab called him in when he when he heard that he's moving to Muncie And he says, who gave you permission to leave? He really fought for every individual to try to stay. There was even an attempt to open a branch in Paramus, New Jersey. And incredibly enough, they hired a Rav Herschel Schechter to become the rabbi. And, um, and that became a branch of Breuer's. Uh, for five years, he was the rabbi. of so Schwab didn't want them moving out to Paramus. He also wasn't excited that they hired a YU rabbi to become the, the Rav there of a Breuer's Kehila. The YU people didn't want to move out to Paramus because it was Frankfurt customs. It wasn't, you know, regular, uh, communal, American communal customs. So they didn't grow. It didn't uh, didn't, it didn't. exactly grow both because of Rev Schwab's opposition and eva- eventually Rav Schechter uh, left that position in Paramus after five years and the Paramus thing didn't really um, develop. But while they were in Paramus, interesting, we spoke about how they kept the Frankfurt customs. They're very strong about keeping all the Frankfurt customs. So Reb Schechter said he would discuss all the communal issues with Rev Schwab during those five years. Now one of the Frankfurt Customs is that you, the kayanim, they do birkas kayanim, they duchen, even by, even after Shkia, by on Yom Kippur. Even if it's after sunset, they still do, do duchening. They still, the kayanim still go up and give the brach. And only in Frankfurt was that the custom. No other community did it after Shkia. And then there was a new kayan in the community in Paramus. And he didn't come from Frankfurt, and he didn't want to make, like, do it after Shkia. So Rabbi Shekhtu came with a compromise that they'll finish Ne'ilah in time before Ishkia. and they'll do Duchening, they'll do Birkaz before Shkiah, and then they'll do a slow Avinu Malkeinu, and then they'll give a drasha. The rabbi, Rabbi Shekhtu, will give a speech, he'll give a drasha until until it's dark enough to daven Meir. And he didn't have a chance to ask Riv Schwab before he did that. So afterwards, he sat down with Riv Schwab and asked him if that was the correct thing to do. Schwab said, "Of course, it was the correct thing to do. You did exactly the Frankfurt custom because that's what Rabbiner Hirsch did. That's what Rav fall Rafal Hirsch did. He also want, struck this compromise that they finished the Neila before Shki. They had the Duchening before skia, and then they did Avina Malkenu slowly. And then Rav Hirsch would give a speech after Neila. It's interesting because my wife's grandfather, who was a yaki in in Katzenstein." See, he told me that uh, Rav Broyer gave a speech only twice a year, the main speech, not a regular shir, from the podium from, from the, to the entire community in the shul, on Shabbos Hagadol and Shabbos Shuva, which is originally the custom from Europe, and in Eastern Europe also. Today changed, but and I happen to know that that, that was the original minute. And, um, and he said Rav Broyer would get an aliyah. That Shabbos, he usually didn't give the rabbi an aliyah, but if he was speaking that Shabbos, they would give him an aliyah. I even saw him go over to the gabbai in uh, my grandfather in the grushul in Baid Vegan, and it was Shabbos Hagadol, and Rabbi Hyman was giving a drasha, the rav of uh, of the grushul, and uh, and 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 he's and they gave Rabbi Hyman and Aliyah, and my wife's grandfather went over to the gabbai and he said, I want to thank you for giving the rabbi and Aliyah the Shabbos that he's giving his speech, because that was the custom in Frankfurt, that was the custom in KJ, and that's what Rabbi did, so we're keeping the Yaqi customs. In any event, going back to what Rev Hirsch did, he gave this speech after Naila, and that was actually the last public speech he gave to the entire community. Um, during the last year of his life, he gave it every year, obviously. But, um, but, uh, he died in December, so there was no Shabbos Shuv or Shabbos Nagatul after that. And, uh, so that was the, that was, that's what Rev Schwab said. Um, so like I said, there's this struggle to keep them in the neighborhood. Um, and in 1980, the community, served, uh, the Kahila, uh sustained a serious double blow. Rav Breuer passed away at the ripe old age of 98. And the longtime president of the Kahila, Dr. Muller, Dr. Rafal Moeller, uh, uh, passed away. There was the degeneration of city neighborhoods at the time, it became too crowded and pricey. Um, eventually, there was a movement to Muncie, where they eventually, much later, opened the branch of uh, KJ. And, um, and then in recent years, there's the rise of the YU community. There's a gentrification of the neighborhood in general. Um, so, um, in fact, there was a, a thought back in the 70s, even, to bring in an outsider, a Bichil Per, who's the, the, the Rashiva of, of Vishir Farakwe, um, to be, him become a rabbi in the Kehillah, that would be an appeal to the younger and more American community. That uh, That didn't work out. But um, but the, uh, the community is still there and with branches and and loyalties even from the people who moved out. So that's a little bit about Washington Heights, part two. And this was Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at Yehudageber.com. Geber is G-E-B-E-R-E-R. And for questions, comments, sources, tours and trips to places of interest in Jewish history, check out our website, com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Soundbites. and I hope you enjoyed.